0: The CNBC app. Global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected. Stay informed. Download the CNBC app today.
1: Happy Friday, everybody. You've got Squawk Box now with Jeff Cutmore, Karen Cho and myself, Steve Sedgwick. And these are your Friday headlines. Tech tumbles as soaring yields hit stocks. The S&P 500 retreats from its record high, whilst the Nasdaq slides 3%, with 10-year U.S. Treasury yields nearing a 14-month high. Talks between the U.S. and China getting off to a rocky start as the two sides trade insults and criticisms. Beijing's Foreign Minister Wang Yi reportedly telling the host it's no way to treat the guests.
2: The European Medicines Agency rules the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine is safe and effective, amid concerns over possible side effects, prompting several EU member states to restart their rollouts. This is a safe and effective vaccine. Its benefits in protecting people from COVID-19 with the associated risks of death and hospitalisation outweigh the possible risks. Meanwhile, Paris and parts of northern France head back into lockdown for at least a month, as the government says. It's in the grip of a third wave, with over 35,000 new cases reported overnight.
0: And oil prices drop as markets react to those lockdown fears in Europe, having some impact on broader demand. Crude prices are steady after plunging more than 7% in the biggest day since September.
1: i thinking a lot about these markets. In fact, last night when I was going to bed at a ridiculously early hour, I was trying to.
2: Six the- o'clock again?
1: Slightly later this time. I've stopped my regime not later. Not much later than that these days. As you know, I have a new love of sleep. But but the fact of the matter is it was a real problem. And the problem was there was some really spicy action going on in some of these markets, not least the oil price, which I was getting mildly obsessed with. Because Brent was dropping through the big handles very, very aggressively. We'll come to that in a few moments time as well. And it just felt like there wasn't a lot to support it regardless of whether people think fundamentally oil is going up or staying where it is. I mean, there's a lot of support in. Uh, in the investor world uh, and analyst world and production world for oil at the current levels at the moment, not least because OPEC is holding the line on supply. But, but it was going down aggressively. But then I thought to myself, hang on a second, Stephen, as a headmaster used to say, words to that effect, something a bit worse, actually. We're not actually seeing that big moves compared to where we've come from. So I'm afraid to say, ladies and gentlemen, if you wanted hysteria this morning on some of these market moves, look away, find somewhere else to go and find. You'll find it somewhere else when people actually don't understand the markets. But actually what these markets have done it is very, very logical and actually very traditional in many ways because what we have seen lately is markets moving aggressively in one direction. But what I like about the markets at the moment is, they're not, they're actually having a very, very aggressive moves, but actually they're doing it in times of small corrections here and then looking about where we are and bouncing back again. For instance, yesterday, What do you think? Well, the Dow was down five tenths of one percent, despite the fact that these markets came off aggressively off their highs. The S&P did lose one and a half percent. The Nasdaq. Now, that's where you're seeing most action. Nasdaq's down three percent. And yet, if you look at the week to date moves, well, I'm afraid to say there's not a lot to see here in some of these indices because week to date, the Dow is actually up not the biggest move in the world, is it? The s and is down seven-tenths of 1%. The Nasdaq is down 1.5%. But let me just give you some context, ladies and gentlemen, on those moves as well. The Dow is 80% off its record low or low of the last 52 weeks. The S&P is 78% above those lows. The Nasdaq is even higher, 98% above those lows. So we have had an enormous rally. And I keep trying to emphasize this to you, Daisy. We had a big, in fact, when I show you the Russell 2K, that's having an even bigger rally. It's had, what is it, 135% of its lows. And yes, it's 4% of its highs. This is what markets used to do. Even if they were moving in one direction, they would have a correction, a pause for breath, and then move in the opposite direction. And again, even the product I was talking about last night, WTI and Brent, which uh, I believe we're going to have a quick look at as well. WTI and Brent, thank you very much indeed. In a moment. Yeah, WTI time Brent, which came off aggressively yesterday, and it did come off aggressively yesterday. And again, some of that price action yesterday just reminded me of what happened a year ago. Nowhere near what happened a year ago, but of course, it was aggressively moving through from the 68 handle at its high yesterday. We 67, 66, 65, 64 through 63, challenging the low end of 62s at one point before a little bounce a little bit later on as well. So these are massive moves, but guess what everybody? Brent is still 70% above its lows for the last 52 weeks as well. What I'm giving you is a bit of context. And yes, markets are having a bit of a wobble at the moment and it could turn into something else, but when those facts change, then we'll change our rhetoric. But in the meantime, just be a bit measured about some of these moves because they've come along way. Uh,
2: funnily enough, there are a lot of reasons to be buying energy yesterday. The inflation concerns, they returned as interest rates marched higher, had a better vaccine use as well. So real catalyst around this rotation towards recovery trades and should have set the scene nicely for energy. Technology, on the other hand, played uh, like clockwork as we saw the market uh, return to some of the high ranges on bond yields, in fact, pushing higher in this window of time. And, and don't forget, we had the Fed meeting this week, the, the commentary very much settling the markets for a short period of time. A dovish Fed uh, looking out into the long grass around what happens with inflation, thinking it'll be a bit of an issue short-term transitory impact for the markets. But then we get back to uh, some more challenges down the track. But interest rates not moving uh, through 2023. That uh, was an interesting backdrop for technology to settle down, but then a delayed impact. And the problem is the market keeps on challenging the Fed. And we had 1.75 on the Treasury. We'll take a look at that in a moment. But that number was a catalyst for more investors to take stock around this particular sector. Apple stock, uh, one of the big uh, moving stocks from the major indices, it was down more than 3.3%. Uh, separate that out with the likes of Tesla on the high-flying stocks. You could see a big move in the ARK Innovation Fund yesterday, down 6.9% on Tesla stock itself. So across the board, you could see the extent of the retreat. A quick look at how uh, these stocks have performed over the course of the week, because it's been incredibly stop-start. Uh, some buying days, some selling days. Uh, Apple itself is only down four-tenths of a percent. So it does tell you that there was some earlier buying staggered uh, this week. Facebook are uh, resilient uh, around what you are facing across the rest of the, the technology And perhaps that is a nod to the advertising model that Facebook has as you see a recovery start to play out. That may also bring more advertising back into the mix and Facebook is seen as a beneficiary there. But weakness right across the board and of course the outsized falls over the week contained around Tesla stock, one of the more volatile ones. Quick look at those treasuries. I mentioned 1.75 that we saw yesterday. We have drifted off that by about six odd basis points this morning, but still perched just shy of 1.7. That is a higher range and I think for some investors it's a trigger point for change changing portfolios away from some of those growth areas of the market, Jeff.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think, as you point out, Karen, it is the tech stocks that have seen most of the pain here. Goodness, Tesla off 7 percent and that big 3 percent decline for the Nasdaq. And as you look at the futures here, you just get the sense that the market is still just trying to find its direction for the day. The futures early on have a slightly positive for the Dow and the S&P with the implied open for the Nasdaq at this point negative Karen
2: Jeff, we're going to talk about uh, what uh, is happening over at uh, the Bank of Japan as the central bank has loosened the bounds of its long-term yield curve control in a bid to make its ultra-easy policy more sustainable. The Japanese central bank will now allow the 10-year JGB yield to move up or down by 0.25% versus uh, 0.2% previously. So just a, a minor tweak there. The BOJ also scrapped its official 6 trillion yen annual target for ETF purchases and said it would only buy topics-linked products when it was necessary. So a step away from the Nikkei. In terms of those Asian markets, uh, that uh, commentary around uh, the ETFs uh, just uh, contained to the topics, knocking the Nikkei back 1.4%. But we've got some risk risk off moves because of those uh, technology events yesterday where we saw the sell-off in the sector and the yield marching north. Uh, That's uh, a negative backdrop for many of these markets. Hong Kong reversing more than 2%. Uh, Shanghai Composite trades down and the Australian market as well. Uh, Just a quick line to add on top of this. I I think we've seen the fund managers very much take stock of what's happening with interest rates and inflation in particular. And you've seen the rotation. They've, They've highlighted that in the Bank of America survey. It's the number one issue overtaking coronavirus. But we've also got another event on the table, some sort of a geopolitical trade event. And we don't know what that looks like at this stage. The outing between the Americans and the Chinese The latest engagement under the new administration I think is somewhat different to what many had expected. They thought they'd get a a slightly uh, nicer looking picture as the two sides sat down with tough issues uh, in the backdrop being negotiated, not front and centre on camera and almost what was a trump style engagement. So I think uh, it's another element for the markets to contend with. I can't
1: help but disagree gently with you about what we expected from the US administration compared with the previous administration at this stage of the administration. Uh, Let me bear, bear with. I think Biden cannot afford to have the moniker and his administration cannot afford to have the moniker. Oh, well, Trump's gone. He was tough. Because Trump hasn't gone anywhere. Trumpism is still there. Uh, but they're watching, of course, uh, you know, ahead of the midterms and what have you. Oh, you cannot have the moniker, oh, yeah, this administration, this Democrat administration, this Biden administration is really soft uh, on China as opposed to us who were tough as well. So I think the early encounters were always going to be robust. But I actually, yeah, I might as well just bring Jeff straight in on this because he knows far more about Sino-US relations than I do. But but uh, but just monitoring uh, the, the noise out of uh, out of the US and looking at you know, the, the copy out of the US over the last few months or so, I don't think the early engagement were ever going to be anything other than robust, Jeff.
0: No, I agree with you. I think the signals were all there. And uh, then subsequently in the appointments of the various secretaries, I think you got a fairly clear message, particularly in the uh, figure of uh, Anthony Blinken, in which direction this dialogue was going to go. Uh, But I think there is a slightly different tone to this administration, to the Trump administration, and with apologies to those who are Trump fans, I think there was a, uh, a sort of um, crazy Ivan uh, tone to the way that foreign policy was pursued, particularly with reference to China. And at times you felt that it was difficult to see a consistent line. There were economic sanctions, then there was talk about security, and then you didn't know whether security trumped economic sanctions uh, and so on and so forth. With this administration, I think you are getting some clarity and consistency in the pattern of approach. And the issue of human rights is going hand in hand with the question of uh, trade access and uh, security more broadly. And clearly, the U.S. has got lots of issues that it wants to bring up at this point. Whether we need to be worried about it as investors in equity markets is still an open question for me because it does feel, even as it's getting a lot of attention this morning, an element of a sideshow when it comes to the greater risk to the reflation story or indeed to uh, allocating into Um, technology or growth stocks. It seems to be your argument should be about all sorts of things, not necessarily whether China and the United States are getting along at the moment.
2: Uh, i just pick up on that point. I think we shall see. And uh, technology has been front and center in the challenge between the Americans and the Chinese at this point. And technology certainly doesn't need another excuse at this point to sell off. Uh, but when it comes to what markets are likely to do next week, I think it's fascinating that Jay Powell has three separate appearances lined up. So he'll have plenty of opportunities to try and push back at some of those market moves we're witnessing uh, on the bond markets. Well, that's the point. I mean, yeah, but when 2022
1: he's... and 2023 are write off in terms of raising rates, in terms of what they expect on this. Dot. I know there's a few dissenters, but mostly it's just like, forget it, isn't it? That's what he's already said, isn't it?
2: A few casual reminders, though, about just what he expects, how far we are from target, I think might be helpful because the bond market keeps trying to challenge things. He went, he finished what he had to say, he goes quiet, and then the market moves later, much delayed moves. It move, was much later, right? you're
1: absolutely right, yeah. I've got one more thing to say um, uh, for me, and then we'll get Jeff to finish off this conversation. I'm still watching whether the momentum trades outweigh all the other fundamentals that we rely on as our bread and butter on a daily basis. Uh, and if the momentum to the downside does pick up and it hasn't picked up on tech, we've, we've seen really bad down days followed by some unbelievably strong up days as well. But if the momentum starts moving aggressively in any of these products, whether it's oil, whether it's tech, whatever, in the one direction, I wonder if that is gonna be more important than the underlying fundamentals in the short term because we haven't seen successive waves of selling of tech. We haven't seen successive waves of selling for energy, for instance, or finance stocks or whatever it may well be that was the bet noir previously for a long, long time. And if the bears or the momentum trades can get something going there, I wonder what that means for the medium term trading outlook, Jeff.
0: Yeah, I just want to make two quick points. I think there are two things that the market is focused on at the moment, um, which are obviously inter- connected. And one is the question of rising yields here. And the other one is a rotation to take advantage of the reflation aspect of the economic recovery here. And obviously that reflation story is about rotation away from growth and intercyclicals. And when it comes to the, uh, the yield story, it's yields edging higher here to fr- reflect again the positivity around the economic recovery and some nascent fears about Inflationary pressures. Um, So, just to focus on the yield story for a moment here, pick your number. What do you think the level of the 10 year is that triggers broader selling and rotation back into bonds at this point? Because I think everybody is on the same page. Equities are going to outpace bonds over the coming period for the markets. I don't think anybody has any disagreement on that. And the reflation trade is being rebuilt on better economic numbers. Now, I know that jobs data yesterday was a bit of a shocker from the States and an unexpected, unpleasant surprise. But the Philadelphia survey was staggeringly better than expectations and I think is just helping to build this idea that there are solid earnings foundations for the reflation recovery. My one proviso is, Sometimes you've got to look in the places where the rest of the market is not focused. And was Green Seal just a canary in a coal mine for risky credit? And as with 2008, nobody was looking at the credit market; they were focused on other asset classes, and that's what bit you in the end. Is it necessary for us to, I think, focus on some other parts of the market here just to get a clue as to what ultimately? could derail the broader recovery rally that I think still looks very much intact at this point. But let me wrap up this element of the conversation here and take us to break. I know we're going to spend a lot more time talking about that meeting in Alaska. So we'll take a break. We'll be back in just a moment. Stay with us. More analysis on how the US and China traded punches in Alaska. Welcome back, everybody. U.S. and Chinese officials exchanged a series of insults and accusations at the start of the first high-level in-person talks between the nations since President Biden took office. The row took place at a photo session, which was meant to take four minutes, but ended up lasting over an hour. Let's bring Sam into this. Um, Didn't go too well, did it, Sam? What does that imply in terms of how the rest of the session went?
3: Good morning to you, Jeff. Well, I don't think the rhetoric was a huge surprise. This was never going to be an easy task, but I don't think many expected to see this very tense relationship played out in front of the cameras quite like it did. They did trade accusations with some pretty sharp disapprovals of each other's policies. The US said that it didn't want to, to have any conflict, but wanted to speak frankly about the issues it has with Beijing, like areas including Xinjiang, Taiwan and Hong Kong, all of which are Beijing has repeatedly warned the U.S. to stay out of. Uh, Secretary of State Antony Blinken said that uh, Chinese actions threaten rules-based order that maintains global stability. So he had some fairly uh, blunt comments. We then heard from the top Chinese diplomat, that is Yang Jiechi, who apparently spoke for 15 minutes in response to that. He said if the U.S. wants to deal with the Chinese side, then do it the right way. He also said there's no way to strangle China, while also lashing out at the U.S. over its democracy and human rights. Now, interestingly, what we heard from reporters in the room at the time, Blinken then asked the journalists to stay in the room so he could respond. We then heard from China's foreign minister, Wang Yi, who spoke up. So a pretty unusual exchange here. The U.S. was then quick to accuse China uh, of violating the meetings, protocols and grandstanding, because, of course, uh, as you suggested, this doesn't typically happen like this. This lasted a lot longer than it should have. The Chinese officials have also accused accused the US side of going over time in opening remarks saying the US had made groundless attacks on China's foreign and domestic policy. So I think the big question is whether what we saw playing out in front of the cameras uh, actually translated to what we saw or what we didn't see behind closed doors, guys. Back to you.
0: Yeah, absolutely, Sam. Well, Jing Dong Yuan is Associate Senior Fellow for the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute and joins us with more on the story. Uh, where do we go from here? Because uh, what we've witnessed is a fairly tetchy opening exchange. Is there a way to uh, step back from this and perhaps build back some bridges for a reset in this relationship?
4: Uh, I think uh, they they can and they must. Uh, I mean, uh, we can understand. You know, at the beginning is uh, sort of a theatrics, and uh, with the U.S. side opening up uh, a number of uh, charges, of course, you would expect the Chinese side to uh, respond in kind. So obviously, uh, that was not uh, helpful and uh, didn't uh, you know look good uh, in terms of. Uh, Atmospherics. Uh, but I think once the camera were uh, out of the room and when both sides sat down to uh, talk about uh, the matters, I think they, uh, I would assume they would be engaging in more serious uh, conversation. There are a number of issues on the table and certainly from the U.S. side, apart from a number of uh, domestic concerns uh, regarding Xinjiang or Hong Kong, or to some extent also cross-strait relations, Taiwan, uh, the U.S. side is very much concerned about the uh, the Chinese foreign policy behavior and what it means for the uh, rule-based order, and in particular, the Chinese uh, trade sanctions against uh, Australia. From Chinese side, of course, uh, there are issues about the U.S. sanctions and restrictions on uh, sales and uh, to Chinese tech companies, uh, so there are a number of issues uh, that they you know likely were engaged in in discussion.
0: The issues I think are fairly clear on the table. The Biden administration had an opportunity to walk back some of the Trade sanctions, uh, some of the tariffs and some of the additional restrictions on technology, it hasn't done that. In fact, if anything, it's doubled down by introducing the issue of uh, Xinjiang and the Uyghurs uh, in a more uh, prominent way. Uh, again, let me put the question to you. Where does this relationship go next, if not further escalation of the friction?
4: Uh, I think, uh, obviously, there are significant challenges uh, ahead of the, the two countries. But I think one factor that is quite important is that neither side can uh, prevail over the other side to uh, make the other side to conceit or, or blink the eye first. And there are serious matters that they both sides uh, should be dealing and and uh, must uh, deal with in in the coming months. And uh, I mean, the Biden administration uh, just uh, started, uh, so we're talking about uh, North Korea nuclear challenges. We talk about the uh, climate change, and where I think the two countries do have some uh, common uh, interests. And trade in itself also is very uh, important. Of course, the U.S. side wants to have. Protection of intellectual property, uh, market access, and allowing the American companies to do uh, trade without being subjected to uh, technology transfer—you know, so-called forced technology transfer—where for China, of course, uh, uh, it wants to have some uh, a bit of certainty in, in doing business uh, with the, with the U.S. And for Biden, uh, I'm not sure about the. Uh, The frontal uh, attack on all, uh, you know, different aspects, all all the different fronts, domestic issues, trade issues, regional security issues, I think uh, there need to be some priorities. And uh, I think this is where the two sides need to figure out, uh, you know, where they can cooperate and they should cooperate and where they should uh, manage tensions uh, unless, you know, tensions escalate into open conflict uh, which neither side wants to see.
2: The Chinese are great students of the Americans in many respects, of financial regulation, capital markets, but also politics. And I wonder whether there have been some learnings now on the back of the engagement for the last number of years with President Trump and his administration. Because the Chinese came primed to this press conference with a very confrontational approach. Do you think that is a legacy from the Trump era, and should we expect more of this from the Chinese side in future?
4: I think uh, my understanding of Chinese foreign policy, especially as it displayed in in the public and open, is that uh, if you put China on the spot, uh, and then inevitably you get the kind of response we saw uh, earlier uh, today or yesterday in in Alaska uh, time. But behind the doors, if both sides can cool down a little bit, and then, of course, they can lay down their bottom lines uh, where they can't make any concessions and then they should move to certain areas that uh, for the immediate future that they can really both sides can do something about uh, as I mentioned the climate change in North Korea and maybe some other uh, issues and so that's very important otherwise you start with this very confrontational and very uh, sort of counterproductive uh, exchange and then if both sides stuck which will not be good for China and the U.S. and certainly not good for the region and for the world as well.
1: So you made some great points about it's not just about the bilateral, it's about their relationships with others as well, including the Quad. So we will come back to you many times, I think, over the next few years uh, on this topic as well. So, But for now, sir, thank you very much indeed for your contribution. Uh, Jingdong Yuan, who is Associate Senior Fellow, Stockholm International Peace Research Institute.